Hi, everybody. My name is Eddie, and I'm an alcoholic. And by that I mean that I don't drink very well when I put it in me. By that I mean that I used to drink a lot of wine and gin and do things that uh, embarrassed me. Um, you should make fun of people who drink gin and wine. If you do that, um, you can lay in a gutter and puke straight up in the air. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you can duck before it comes down. Uh, we spend a lot of time uh, reminiscing as to what it was like uh, to be an alcoholic, you know, the, the gentility of our spirits when we're out there. Uh, how people perceive us, how we're treated, and of course it's all nonsense because if you're like me, you see it through that nice, gentle, mindless haze, you know, that uh, we pass through as an imitation for life. But I remember a, uh, an old Irish uh, music hall ditty that I'd like to share with you that I think describes the position of the alcoholic better than anything else I've ever heard. And it goes like this. How well I do remember that evening in September. I was carrying home my load with manly pride. When my legs began to stutter, I laid down in the gutter, and a pig came up and laid down by my side. <laughs> we were singing. It's fair weather when good friends get together and a lady passing by was heard to say you can tell a man who boozes by the company he chooses and the pig get up and quickly walked away <laughs> I know that pig well before I forget, because I do have a quick forgetter, let me congratulate you all on the third conference you're having here and to thank you for inviting me to come out here at no small expense from Philadelphia. I flew here Midway Airlines and uh, cheated death again. <laughs> Got here about an hour late. I never really do know how to get started when I stand up to uh, try to share my experience, strength, and hope with uh, other suffering alcoholics because that's the only reason I'm here. That's the only reason you're here is so that we can share with each other uh, some of our experience with this disease and more importantly, our experience with respect to recovery from this disease. I always get nervous. Uh, I know why. First of all, I'm a member of the CIA, um, Catholic, Irish, and alcoholic, for those of you that don't know. Uh, alcoholics don't spread the truth around too easily, and you've got to be able to tell the truth when you stand up here as best you can. Now, I've got a double whammy. If you're also a criminal defense attorney, it's almost impossible, you know. We're, we just don't do that very easily, that is, tell the truth. 
We save us for emergencies. <laughs> when all else fails, you tell the truth, but not before. Um, let me just start by telling you about my last drunk. On the morning after the night before of my last drunk, I woke up in a dark room. Now, it wasn't unusual for me to wake up in a dark room. I woke up in dark rooms whether it was noon or midnight because the blinds were always drawn toward the end, at least. I was in the Air Force at the time, uh, keeping the taxpayers safe. I was flying airplanes. Uh, <laughs> not very well. <laughs> I was stationed at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey, and uh, when I woke up in this dark room the morning after the night before my last trunk, I thought that I was in my room at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. There's a smell like my room at McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. My brain was operating on slow time. <clears throat> you know what that is, you sit on the edge of the bed and if you're lucky you can remember your first name. You might have to look at your ID card to get the last one right. And I just kind of sat there and stared around and was sick. And uh, things began to appear to me in this room that were not familiar. Uh, there were a couple of pictures on the wall that I didn't recognize. There was a woman in the bed beside me that uh, was of a different uh, color than I was. Uh, I was the wrong color. Uh, I got up and I thought I'd better check out where I am. And I got up and looked uh, around and went outside and I tell you I was like a marshmallow on a coal pile because where I was was in Africa. And I didn't know how the hell I got there. <laughs> and I didn't know where in Africa I was. <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to get out of Africa, if ever. And panic set in. <clears throat> So I rifled through my pockets and I found a uh, key <coughs> that said Royal Haile Selassie Hotel, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. <laughs> and I don't know where the hell the Royal Haile Selassie Hotel was, but I was hoping I was close to it. <laughs> We are not totally insensitive people. <laughs> we know there are certain questions you just can't ask. You can't walk down the street and say to somebody, pardon me, sir, <laughs> can you tell me what country this is? <laughs> Tell me the year, approximately. <laughs> so we dance around. And I danced around and found a guy who uh, spoke some English. He was a, uh, an Italian. And, uh, <laughs> very cleverly, I... <laughs> Asked him where he was from, and he told me Italy. And uh, what are you doing over here? Working for 
some firm and uh, where do you live now? He said, well, uh, it, right here in Addis Ababa. And I thought, aha, <laughs> I've got it. So I told him I was a little bit disoriented, and uh, to make a long story short, he sent me back to, in a cab, to the Royal Haile Selassie Hotel. And the Air Force was gone. And I didn't know whether they were coming back either. <laughs> they did, obviously. I'm here, so they, they came back. <clears throat> and I went into the hotel and had three drinks that morning to uh, calm my nerves. And those were the last three drinks of alcohol <coughs> excuse me, that I've had to take from that day to this. I haven't had to take a drink of alcohol or any of its substitutes from that day to this. And that was the 3rd of September, 1962. Um, I know the speakers always say they're eternally grateful for having not had to take a drink in X number of years. I can tell you that I'm eternally grateful to have found Alcoholics Anonymous and to have had the opportunity over those years to meet people like you, who showed people like me where the path was, what the nature of the path was, and more importantly, maybe, the identity of the pathfinder that we refer to as God as we understand God to be. I ought to tell you just a little bit about my background. I uh, <clears throat> grew up in a coal mining town in upstate Pennsylvania. My father was a, a black lung coal miner, uh, Irish immigrant, uh, practically illiterate. Uh, uh, if he wrote anything, it was with great pain and great effort. Uh, my mother wasn't too much better off, and uh, we grew up on welfare, a whole lot of us kids. I was the oldest. When I was 17 years old in 1951, I hate to think that's 40 years ago this year, <laughs> I joined the armed forces. The Korean War was on. I saw too many John Wayne movies. So I joined the armed forces at age 17 and went directly after training to uh, Korea and spent a year there during the Korean War and came back. Uh, mostly I remember about that as being scared and cold on occasion. Uh, that's not what I'd say in my head, but that's exactly what it was. I came back from there and was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas at about age 19. I think I was just turning 19 at the time. And from the perspective of the now time, with eyesight that sometimes we get in AA, looking back, the perspective sometimes approaches 2020. Uh, foresight, I have none. But hindsight, I better develop some and learn from my sins, if not from my virtues. And I look back to that time and place in Corpus Christi, Texas, and I can tell you that the symptoms of alcoholism as I understand them to be today, began to appear in my life. And they appeared in my life probably the same way they began to appear in your life. They don't happen overnight. This isn't the kind of a disease that compresses itself into a week or a month. No matter how fast the case you have, and I had a fairly rapid one by contemporary standards, at least when I got sober, having drank only from age 16 till 28. Uh, but no matter how you measure it, it takes from you the things you cherish slowly, at least from the perspective of the person who's suffering from it. It seems to me that it takes it slowly. And I look back and, and can tell you again that the symptoms of alcoholism, as I understand them to be today, began to appear in my life. And they began to appear in my life 
for instance, one, the first time I missed work on a Monday morning at this air base where I was stationed, uh, I was a mechanic. And I remember falling asleep on the way back and waking up at noon and running back to the base with a gorgeous white uniform on that really looked wonderful after sleeping in the cotton patch on the way back. And running down to see this chief petty officer that I worked for, uh, apologizing to him because I was late and because I embarrassed him. He was like a father figure. And, uh, I think everybody has standards. One of mine was you stood tall for duty and you showed up when you were supposed to. I don't think that's a big virtue, but nonetheless, it was my virtue at the time. And I was ashamed of myself for missing morning. He was like anybody else. He said, oh, oh, all good sailors do that. Don't worry about it. Just don't do it again. But you know, about the 15th time that I did that, he didn't say, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> he called me 16 kinds of an SOB, told me I was embarrassing the Navy and that I was a pain in the neck to him and a pain elsewhere to him. Just told me the things that you've been told many, many times. I look back at this disease and I sometimes used to wonder how people who are otherwise intelligent, and I don't mean anything fancy by intelligence, nothing at all. I mean nothing more complicated than if you put your hand on something and it's hot, you take it off. But I've always wondered why people who weren't completely brain dead could uh, do the things we do, go to the places we go, hurt the people we hurt. And I look back to that time and place in Corpus Christi with that chief petty officer, and I can tell you what happened to me that explains for me why I could do what I did. And that is, as he began to get on my back for what I was doing wrong, one day I had a vision right out of the blue, just like magic. I concluded that it was his fault. <laughs> now, if you can do that, if you can blame others, universally blame others, you can go places with this disease. <laughs> and I did. I did. If it wasn't the chief, it was the lousy slobs I had to live with. If it wasn't the lousy slobs I had to live with, it was being an Irish Catholic in Baptist country. If it wasn't being an Irish Catholic in Baptist country, it was bad luck. <laughs> if it wasn't bad luck, it was having the wrong parents. You know, when all else fails, you can blame your parents. And of course, we do that if we want to continue to drink, and it seems like the natural thing to do. Now, I, I think there's another phenomenon that occurs for most of us who uh, make careers out of alcoholic drinking, and that's, you, 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 if you're like me, you'll do one more thing. And that is, you get to the place where you listen to one voice and one voice only. And that's the voice of the idiot that lives in your head and who makes suggestions to you when you drink that make sense. <laughs> then, they come out nice and round and they have no rough edges. And he'll lead you down the path to outer space. For instance, uh, it would tell me to do things that would get their attention. I mean, if you uh, come in and you sleep on the top bunk and you get in bed without going to the bathroom and have a belly full of beer and it leaks through on the guy down below, it gets his attention, I guarantee you. If you're the kind of a guy who never washes his clothes because he doesn't want to spend money and they hang on the 
Lonnie bag on the foot of your bunk and permeate the whole barracks with the odor and you see guys turn green as they walk by, it gets their attention. Uh, if you're the guy that always picks the fights and can't finish them, uh, you become isolated. If you become isolated, the voice gets louder. Uh, if you're like me, I was walking down the streets of Corpus Christi one night at uh, about two o'clock in the morning by myself, drunk. And I saw this woman's wash on the line. Men's clothes, women's clothes, pants, preserves, slip shirts, uh, you name it, it was there. Uh, and the voice told me to take it. <laughs> I took it off. And the voice said, put it on. <laughs> and I put it all on. Pants, preserves, slips, shirts, everything. Forty pounds of clothes. <laughs> I was walking down the street with my arms stuck out like a ruptured crow. If you do that, you're going to draw a cop. <laughs> if you like me, the cop will say to you, what are you doing? That's 38 years ago. I still haven't thought of an intelligent answer to that question. What the hell I was doing? Of course, the next morning when you wake up in jail and look across the room and uh, there's a pile of clothing there and you have vague memories of uh, <clears throat> what happened and right on top there's a pair of pants and a brassiere and I'm not sure myself at those days anyway and I look over there and I say, you didn't do that. And the voice said, yes, you did. <laughs> you know, even the judge laughed at that. I didn't really get into too much trouble, but I knew something. I knew that, not that I was in trouble, but that the guys back at the base that I didn't get along with anyway. Uh, we're going to find out, not that I was in jail, that's semi-respectable, but uh, <laughs> well, why I was in jail. And, uh, I didn't get along with them anyway, and I thought, knew that I'd probably have to fight and uh, lose. And uh, I took a drink of alcohol to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame that came from getting in trouble. And that made it easier. And if you're an alcoholic like I was already, and you take one drink of alcohol, regardless of the reason, it seems to me, sooner or later you must drink to excess. There are no exceptions to that. I've, over the years that I've been around AA, the last 28 years, I've seen people come and people go. And people come back. And I never saw one that came back and reported that he had a good time, that it was wonderful out there, that it got better. They all come back in with the shakes and the gawks and the sweats and the tears and the dirty pants and worse than that. So I took a drink of alcohol to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame. I was already an alcoholic and sooner or later I had to drink to excess and I did drink to excess. And sooner or later as a result of drinking I get into another jam and to make it easier to bear the pain and the shame that came from that next jam, I took another drink of alcohol to make it easy. And that's my case history in a nutshell. I wouldn't have to tell you another thing about me, except, except, as you know, with every practicing alcoholic, as time goes by, the jams get closer and closer together. 
If you have any standards of behavior or anything that you say a human being won't do, and on the wrong day it comes between you and taking a drink, that standard goes and you continue on. <coughs> Did you get to the place where you don't care? Or you say, who cares? Who cares? Just let me drink. Just let me have enough to drink and I don't care what happens to me. And most of us do that. I would periodically try to shape up, turn over new leaves. One time I saw a notice on a bulletin board that said fleet-wide competition for appointments to Annapolis. And I thought, that's for me. Now, I got to tell you, I'm a test taker. That's not a virtue. That's just a fact. That's the way it is. It's significant in my life. I can take tests. I could probably pass a test on nuclear physics if it was multiple choice about which I know nothing if you let me read it. <laughs> um, that's just the way it is. I saw this note on the board that said Fleetwood competition for appointments to Annapolis. They were going to give 20 appointments to the enlisted ranks that year. <coughs> and I thought, that's for me. <laughs> no problem, that's what I'm going to do. So I shaped up and went and took those tests, and I passed all those tests, and I got one of those appointments to Annapolis. And all I had to do was behave myself <laughs> until the following spring. And I would have been a midshipman at Annapolis, and that's a tremendous break for a cold crackers kid from upstate Pennsylvania with, who barely got out of high school. And I wasn't even surprised about it. I thought, it's about time. Uh, somebody's recognized my genius. Uh, I'll go through Annapolis at the speed of light. Uh, I'll be an ensign, and uh, no doubt at all, somewhere down the line, I'll be an admiral. <laughs> And I'll get a battleship, and I'll get those SOBs that have been getting me with that battleship. Uh, but I went out in December of that year to celebrate my birthday, and I did something that drunks do. I stole an automobile. But I stole an automobile not knowing how to drive an automobile, <clears throat> and never having had a driver's license. It was just there in the parking lot at this gin mill, and uh, the voice said, why don't you take it? And, <laughs> So I did, and I got it started, and I had it in first gear, and this is way back in the early 50s, and uh, got it in the first gear, standard shift, but I didn't know how the hell to get it out of first gear. So if you're going down a highway at about 20 miles an hour in first gear, you know what the car sounds like? It sound, sounds like an airplane ready to take off. And if you do that, you're going to draw a cop. And I did draw the cop, uh, probably the same one that found me with the clothes, but <laughs> right behind me, uh, all alcoholics are geniuses. Uh, I'm no exception. Uh, I eased that car over to the side of the road and uh, slid over into the passenger seat. <laughs> passenger door and uh, got out and uh, crawled under the car to hide from the police who were watching me do it.
And they sat down on the curb with their flashlight and waited for me to come out. In my gorgeous white uniform. And this time it wasn't ho-ho-ho. This time they didn't laugh. This time it was grand theft, and this time I was looking at some time in a Texas prison. And thank God the Navy that I hated and the uh, commanding officer who was uh, a maniac, the chief petty officer who was my mortal enemy, all came down and said, uh, don't put this young man in a Texas prison. Uh, he's a Korean War veteran. <laughs> Give him back to us. <laughs> And we will court-martial him. <laughs> and they did. <clears throat> and it's probably one of the best breaks I ever got because uh, I got thrown in a local brig for a little while and then no restrictions and I was sober and uh, I didn't get pitched out of the Navy and I didn't have to go to a Texas prison and I didn't have a dishonorable discharge. And I quit drinking folks forever. I knew that was not bad luck. I really knew, I want to report to you, at that time, I knew it wasn't being born an Irish Catholic. Nor was it having bad luck, or nor was it having the wrong parents. This was nuts. And alcohol had something to do with it. But in 1953, at age 19, I didn't know a damn thing about the disease of alcoholism. And I had never heard of AA. And I quit drinking forever. And it lasted for me about three or four weeks because I couldn't stand it being sober. I think alcoholics should routinely quit drinking if they could stand being sober. The problem with being a drunk is you can't stand being sober. One day comes along and it's not too bad without a drink. Then the second day comes along and every fear and frustration that happened in the first day you bring into the second, if you're like me. And when the third comes along, you drag number one and number two into the third day. And if you can add and subtract at the end of two weeks, you got 14 days worth of resentments and anger and frustrations. And if you're like me, you forget all the trouble and you say, to hell with it, I'm going to have a drink. And you go have a drink. One beer's not going to hurt me. So I started to drink again. I used to say I got out of the Navy. I got to tell you I wasn't allowed to stay in the Navy. I had to get out after the four years were up. I went back to my hometown in Centralia, Pennsylvania, a tiny coal mining town way back in the boondocks in the mountains. My parents had seen me go away, a mixed up teenager. They saw me come back, a certified nutcase. <laughs> I had younger brothers and a sister. I ran in and out of every back door in town. I drank, I wouldn't work. I stayed there, I got into fights. I got beat up a lot. One day I stole another car. Uh, only this time I stole the only police car in town. <laughs> in response to the suggestion by the voice. <laughs> I didn't like the cop, and the voice said, take his car, man. <laughs> they found out who did it, and they said, leave or else. I knew what the or else was, so I left. Uh, and kind of like who needed them. I went to Philadelphia to seek my fortune. And I got a job in a machine shop and got fired because I didn't show up often enough. And... Then I went over to New Jersey and got a job in an automobile factory, and I think I lasted a month and got fired because I didn't show up too often. Uh, wandered down towards Baltimore and got a job there, uh, tending bar. I got fired because I didn't show up too often, and when I did, I drank too much. I was working my way up in the world. I uh, 
<laughs> went to Washington, D.C. from there and uh, got a fantastic job slinging hamburgers in a White Tower restaurant and uh, got fired from it and got fired from a lot of jobs. And I lived in boarding houses and uh, uh, finally got a job with an airline as a mechanic and joined a union. Uh, and I worked for several years for that airline, uh, which is now out of business. <laughs> after I left. <laughs> and I, I, I had a vision, and I'm sure you all had, that I was going to do something with my life, you know? Good word we use for ourselves, it's not even English, Spanish, mañana. I'll take care of it tomorrow. Next semester I'm going to enroll in college on the GI Bill, which is my right, and get myself an education. But in the meantime, I think I'll have a drink because I don't feel too good. And I have a drink and the next semester comes and the next semester goes and I don't enroll in college. I live in boarding houses. I'm going to save some money from my paycheck so I can get out of boarding houses and live in an apartment. But I feel bad, so in the meantime, I think I'll have a couple of drinks just to feel better. And a month comes and a month goes and a year comes and a year goes and I'm still living in boarding houses. I would move from boarding house to boarding house when my bill got too high and I'd have to leave in the middle of the night with uh, Irish luggage, you know, two paper sacks full of whatever I owned and a sea bag. Uh, I didn't do anything. I just got lost in America in a saddest kind of way when you look at it from the outside. From the inside, it really isn't. I just got seedier and seedier. I didn't bathe too often. I had salt stains down to my waist frequently. I had a mouthful of rotten teeth because I liked to drink wine even then. And I didn't bother to brush my teeth. I let my hair grow long and I grew a beard. Now in the 50s, that wasn't hip. Um, I was hip before I knew it was hip to be hip, if you know what I mean. <laughs> just kind of wandered around and got their attention. I got locked up in Washington six or seven times uh, for weird things like uh, peeing on fire plugs. Uh. <laughs> they really don't like it if you do that and then say to the cop, well, dogs do it, I'm as good as a dog, you know. I mean, it's just not a logical excuse. Uh. I spent a lot of time by myself <laughs> drinking and talking and singing songs, going down the street, and pretending that I was going to write the great American novel and never wrote anything but gibberish, and got fired from my last job for not showing up too often. Got thrown out of the boarding house I was living in, sitting in a gin mill in Alexandria, Virginia with uh, my sea bag. And it was one of those instances in my life where uh, a vision just came to me. I was sitting on his bench with the beard and the sweat stains and stinking. Uh, I am amazed, by the way, still, yet, to this day, when I hear guys come in these rooms and tell me what great lovers they were out there. I remember what they smell like. <laughs> I used to dream about getting a date when I was a drunk out there on the street in Washington, D.C. And I think I had two in a whole several years that I was there. 
and they were coyote dates. <laughs> you know what a coyote date is? It's accidental for openers. And it's one of those where when you wake up in the morning, you'd rather chew your arm off than wake up what's beside you. And <laughs> that was my only luck. I was sitting on this park bench and I looked across the street and what I'm about to tell you next is so improbable, but true. There was a sign there that said, join the Air Force. And I said, that's for me. <laughs> so I went across the street and I went in to see this recruiting officer, Sergeant, with my beard and long hair and foul breath, sweat stains, rotten teeth. And I told him that I wanted to join the Air Force. And he told me where I could go. And it wasn't to boot camp, I'll tell you. But I insisted. I told him I had a constitutional right to join the Air Force. That I was a veteran, honorably discharged. They needed people. That I was a certified mechanic. I didn't tell him I'd been fired, but I told him I was a certified mechanic and I know you need mechanics. So to get rid of me, he said, uh, well, here's the test, take the tests. And he made the biggest mistake of his life. Because drunk, I can take tests. Hungover, I can take tests. Sick, I can take tests. Can't do anything else, but I can take tests. And I think I got the highest scores he'd recorded in many a year. And I got in the Air Force, and I got a shave, and I got my teeth fixed, and a haircut, and three meals a day, and I began to feel a little bit good. And when they put me back in, they put me through some retraining, so I couldn't drink too much. And uh, I was in there about three months, and... Uh, I was called into personnel office and they informed me that as a result of these initial tests, uh, now, now, now your country was desperate, I'll tell you, at the time, but <laughs> as a result of these tests, they wanted to give me some more tests and those additional tests were Air Force officers qualification test, flight aptitude test, and uh, two-year college equivalency test, and uh, I took them and, uh, and I said this without any kind of pride, really, none, zero, zip, uh, I passed them all and I wasn't too surprised. And uh, <laughs> a couple of months later, I got a letter signed by the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, General LeMay, um, saying, if you would like, we will give you an appointment to the Aviation Cadet Program, send you through flight training and make you an officer. And I wasn't too surprised. I thought that's the way it ought to go, you know. Uh, second chance, a genius. And uh, I'll go through there. I'll be a general someday. If I can't get a battleship, I'll get a bomber. But I'll get those SOBs and get me. I went into training. I was a marvelous physical specimen. Uh, drunks check their bodies, you know, drunks, how they check their bodies. Usually when they walk past the mirror, when they come out of the shower, and they stop, <laughs> who's that? And I'm no exception. I remember checking my body and standing before the mirror and uh, trying to make a muscle, you know, uh, <laughs> bicep, and nothing happened. Nothing happened at all. I mean, it was absolutely nothing there. It wouldn't, wouldn't move. And that's the kind of shape I was in when I went into training and I got sick a lot the first uh, couple of months. But I didn't drink and health returned and uh, when I don't drink, um, the good Lord gave me a lot of talents and when I don't drink, uh, I do well. And I didn't drink and I did well. And 15 months later I graduated from that program as a second lieutenant with the pair of wings and uh, full of myself, <laughs> success. 
and I reported to McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey in 1961. Uh, flight transports, it's before Vietnam. We flew with stewardesses, some of them were good-looking blondes. Uh, thought this is it. <laughs> in no time at all, I'll uh, work my way off this base, get an apartment in town, and uh, buy that convertible automobile, and uh, meet these blonde-headed women that I've been missing all these years. Uh, and I'll drink. I forgot all about troubles with alcohol. What's that? But I'll drink from the top shelf, and be careful. No more of this beer and muscatel wine. Um, martinis. <laughs> that I saw on television sophisticated gentlemen drank. So I started to drink. And I was a distinguished graduate of that program when I reported to that base. And within the next nine months, I was locked up in the local area six times. I've been locked up in Philadelphia once. I spent a month in an Air Force hospital because I almost bled to death. I ruptured a varicosity in my throat, vomiting. Drunks vomit well. They kneel like vespers every morning before the commode with snot hanging out of their nose and take care of things. Uh, I got grounded. I got court-martial papers served on me again. I was restricted to my quarters, placed under arrest. And I didn't care. Who needs them? It's them. It's the lousy officer corps, not the enlisted ranks. It's still bad luck. It's being stationed at the wrong place. It's everything. And I almost died. I drank in my room, gin and wine. I had visions. Um, I saw some things, heard voices, and I used to say then I found AA, but that's not true because that's when AA found me. I shared a bathroom with another young officer there, and this is in 1962 when there weren't a hell of a lot of rehabs, and there wasn't a whole lot of stuff on television about alcoholism. And there was no National Council on Alcoholism. And nobody that I knew, even for years thereafter, ever suggested that somebody who was 28 years old would be an alcoholic. They'd suggest you're a nut if you acted like I did. They'd suggest you were a criminal if you acted like I did. They'd suggest you were trash and should get the hell out of here if you acted like I did. But nobody at that time figured a 22-year-old officer in the United States Air Force would be an alcoholic. Nobody had any knowledge that I knew of. And one morning when I was kneeling in that bathroom, on the commode, vomiting, the guy who shared it with me, who had the next room named Kurt, was standing there watching me, and I was puking blood. And I said for the first time in my life, my God, I've got to stop drinking. And I was an atheist, so that was just an expression. <laughs> Kurt, who used to pick me up at the parking lot occasionally, put me in my room, said to me, do you mean that? And I said, yes. I didn't mean it, but I said yes. And that was all he needed, because here was a guy who was not an alcoholic, 
didn't have a drinking problem, still doesn't have one, who knew all about alcoholism. And he was probably the only guy on McGuire Air Force Base that would run into me that knew about alcoholism. Because Kurt's father was an alcoholic. And Kurt told me about his dad. He told me about when he was a young teenager holding his father down while his father pulled the lizards off his chest while he was having the DTs. Told me about growing up in the homes of relatives because his parents got divorced because of his father's drinking. He told me about his father going to a Texas prison for two years for doing what alcoholics do best, sign bad checks. <coughs> Most importantly, he told me about his father going to Alcoholics Anonymous and never taking another drink. That old man wrote to me after I got sober till he died. Finally, Kurt says to me, you should go to AA. And I was a bit insulted. <laughs> so I said to him, uh, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he did what you did, he laughed. And I'll quote his answer, he said, I don't know, Ed, but they'll never turn you down. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, and I know there's somebody out there who's like me, who's sitting there thinking, I wonder if I'm bad enough to be an alcoholic. Well, let me tell you something. Maybe not, but stick around, because you'll do till the real thing comes along, you know? If you walk like a duck and act like a duck and quack like a duck and waddle like a duck, maybe you're a duck. You know, that's how ducks find out they're ducks, by watching other ducks. And if you watch other alcoholics and in the right place your head nods, maybe what's wrong with you is called alcoholism, as is what was wrong with me. Kurt calls AA, makes an appointment for me to meet the president of AA. <laughs> the Salvation Army building in Wrightstown, the camp town outside the base. Now, I'm an atheist, and I have status, and I'm not going near to Sally Ann. That sounds like the sawdust trail and the tambourines, and I'm not going there, but Kurt's bigger than me, and he made the appointment, so we go. He smuggles me out in his car. I had my usual disguise on, which was a raincoat with the collar turned up, and I had a fat lip and a black eye, and I almost always had fat lips and black eyes, you know. I would start fights and never finish them. Uh, somebody else would finish them for me. Uh, and I showed up with the shakes at the Salvation Army building with the black eye and a fat lip to meet the guy who was to become my sponsor. Now, we walk in the door, and I look up at the sign that's over the door, and we had meetings there forever after, and there was a sign over the door of that little Red Shield Club, and I love the Salvation Army. I'm still an Irish Catholic and practice my religion, but I just love the Sally Ann because they gave us places to meet when no one else would. And I love them. I love them with all my being. And we go in there and there's a sign above the door that I see as soon as I walk in that I think is one of the most absurd signs I ever saw. And it says, it commands, when your knees knock, kneel. <laughs> and I read that and I say, come on. 
you be serious? It's the best advice I ever got in my life, by the way. But only after the fact. Only after the fact. I'll tell you, that's the best advice I ever got in my life. Uh, just as an aside, that uh, sign some years later came down when the club had to be disbanded and sold. And uh, it's got a new repository. It's uh, right above my bed. <laughs> I don't want any part of this. Kurt's behind me and he's bigger. So I'm going in there with my collar turned up, hoping nobody will see me, whereby I might lose my reputation. <laughs> and went back to sleep and I froze to the door. <laughs> it belongs to a major the automobile did. It was a new car and when he came out and opened his car, a second lieutenant came ripped the door, frozen to the door, and puke. And I was afraid of losing my reputation, you know. The voice is funny. The voice is weird. We are weird. We're going to ask the captain of the Salvation Army, who's the president of AA, Joe? And the guy says, he's over there in the corner. Now, I look over in the corner, and I know who Joe is. And I don't want any part of this. I want out of there so bad, but I can't get out. Most people talk about having sponsors that were sergeant majors, that acted like sergeant majors. My sponsor was the sergeant major. Because Joe is the base sergeant major. And that's the meanest man on McGuire Air Force Base. I think he joined the Army with Custer. I knew who he was. Everybody was afraid of him. He had rows of ribbons from here up over his shoulder. I'm exaggerating a bit, but not by much. So we go over and I sit down. He asked me all the questions. Do you drink? Yeah. How much? A lot. <laughs> How much is a lot? I tell him. He says, that's a lot. <laughs> Do you want to stop? Yes. When? Any answer other than right now, he wouldn't be interested in. So I said, well, now. And he said, good. By the way, what's your rank? Now, I got a quote, and I said, just as arrogantly as I could, I said, second lieutenant. And I got to quote his answer. Because it defined our relationship from that day on until he died some 15 years later. And I quote, he said, and I quote, I'll be a son of a bitch. I've been waiting 20 years to get my hands on a second lieutenant. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> yes, sir. I got sober immediately. He went to see my commanding officer and got me released like a piece of contraband material, you know. Take him out, sign him out, and bring him back at midnight before he turns into a pumpkin, you know. I resented that, but uh, I went to AA meetings. The cuts healed, uh, my face went down, the swelling went down. I was still facing the court-martial. I stayed sober for a month, and I couldn't stand it, and I got drunk on a weekend, and I stayed sober for two months and couldn't stand it, and I got drunk on a weekend. 
And finally, I went on that last drunk that I told you about, where I took my last drink in Africa. <laughs> and when I came back to uh, McGuire Air Force Base, in the meantime, I got put back on flight status because I was looking good until I got over there and looked bad <laughs> under supervision. And when I came back, I came back to a, a, a little more chastened. I didn't believe in God. I would be embarrassed by your references to God. This was my mindset at the time. But I wanted to stay sober more than anything in the world. I don't know where that came from. That's a gift. I didn't know at the time where it came from, but that was a free gift, finally, to me. I didn't care. I wanted to stay sober. I didn't want to do these steps. I didn't want to listen to people talk about God. I certainly didn't want to write down every rotten thing I'd ever done in my life and tell somebody about it, nor did I want to take new drunks around and let them puke in my car that I bought with the money I saved when I got sober. But I liked the attention I got, and I went to meetings, and I got to like some of the guys, and I liked taking some of the new people ultimately to meetings. And I stayed sober on momentum. I took lots of nice vacations because money accumulated in my pocket. I was the youngest guy around, and I got a lot of attention. I'm not a bad-looking guy when I don't drink, in spite of your opinion. I'm not a bad-looking guy when I don't drink, <laughs> when I'm young. And I attracted a few blondes. <laughs> and that was kicks, too, and they weren't in AA, let me tell you. There weren't any blondes in AA back then in McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey. Probably a good thing for me. Maybe a bad thing for them, but a good thing for me. So I stayed sober on momentum. I got to like some of the people in the fellowship. I think I would have stayed sober on momentum forever if I could have swung it. But if you're like me, you suffer from the wrong day syndrome. If you have the kind of a personality I have, you have the wrong day syndrome. And the wrong day syndrome is not something to be feared because if you're really a cynic and reluctant to get into AA, have it. Ultimately, it will save your life. Let me tell you how the wrong day operates. On the wrong day, if I walk into the air operations office, stone cold sober, and two guys are standing in the corner talking, if they shut up on the wrong day when I walk in that door, they were talking about me. <laughs> on the wrong day, if you let me think about it for 12 hours, I can tell you exactly what they said about me, even though I hadn't heard a word. On the wrong day, if I brood about that for 24, 36 hours, it's time to get revenge. And the revenge means putting a hand grenade in their desk and tying the pin of the hand grenade to the drawer of the desk so that when they open it, it will explode and they'll die because of what they said about me, even though I didn't hear a word. Now that passes. And you know that's nuts. <laughs> And if you're like me, you say, yeah, that's nuts, but just don't let it happen again. <laughs> and life goes on. And it happens again. On the wrong day, a teenager cuts you off in your new car, and it's time to get out of the car with a tire iron and do some damage to his car because he cut you off. And then you suddenly realize that the cops are coming. So Stone Cold Sober, an officer in the United States Air Force, you get back in your car and you flee the scene because it's the wrong day. The last wrong day I had uh, happened to me uh, when I was sober, I don't know, somewhere between two or three years. Uh, I'm not proud of this. This is just the way it was. On the wrong day, I went to the wrong meeting and listened to the wrong guy tell me, who was sicker than me, 
tell me that my best friend was talking about me. And I brooded on that. And my best buddy was Andy. And he was another young guy to get into the program. So I brooded on what he probably said about me. And uh, I had it all figured out. So I went to our own group meeting on a Sunday and walked up to Andy and he said to me, hi. And I smacked him right in the mouth. And he fell down and he got up and he smacked me right in the mouth. And we rolled around on the floor at our group, uh, <laughs> setting a good example for the newcomer. Uh, And I did what all good alcoholics do. I went outside and I sat down and I cried. And I went to my sponsor and I told him that I was going to get drunk. I couldn't stand this anymore. It was all, you know what it was. <laughs> and he said to me, yeah, you are. Unless you do some things that I've been telling you to do. I told him that in my opinion, in my judgment, I didn't have to do these steps because I'm an atheist and they have a lot to do with God and if you're an atheist you can't do that. So he said to me, uh, what has the fourth step got to do with God? Literally. <coughs> read it. And I read it. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Doesn't mention God. I had to admit to him, nothing. I'm here to tell you that man sandbagged me. <laughs> Came to find out in retrospect, and I'll tell you a little bit about that, that uh, has everything to do, for me, with the ultimate search that I think we come to if we stay sober in AA, and that's the search for God as we understand God to be. I hope nobody gets embarrassed by that topic because that's the secret. <laughs> that's the secret to sobriety sooner or later. He said to me, why don't you do that? I said, okay. Wonderful word. Let me suggest it to you, anybody that's having troubles. The sponsor makes a suggestion, a wonderful answer. Okay. We just go ahead and do it. I said, I don't know how to do that. He pointed me to pages 67, I think it is, in the big, don't hold me to it, 67 through 72. It's only five pages in the big book. Tells you how to do a four-step inventory. Tells you to make a list of the people you hate and why. Tells you to go back over your life and write down essentially the things you've done, the attitudes you've had, the relationship you've had with people. Even suggests a little bit about the cardinal sins. And you know, they were familiar. Finally he said to me, why don't you start with the worst thing you ever did? Now, I knew what the worst thing that I ever did was. Because I didn't want to sit down in a dark room and think about that, much less put it on paper. <coughs> and I got to tell you about the worst thing that I ever did, even though I don't want to tell you about the worst thing that I ever did. The worst thing I ever did in my life, I did to my father. When I was home from the Navy, running amok, stealing a police car and getting run out of that town, <coughs> my dad, who was a black lung miner, uh, tall as I am, was down to about 80 pounds, and he was a decent, decent man. I was his oldest son, an old Irishman, and he loved me to death. 
And as I was being run out of the town, and he was in bed, he couldn't get out of bed, with the peculiar logic that goes with this disease, he started to lecture me about my behavior. And with that even more peculiar and bizarre logic that goes with us in this disease, it seemed to me that what was wrong with me was his fault. <clears throat> so I told that old man that it was his fault. I told that old man that the worst thing that ever happened to me was to have him for a father. That he was the sorriest excuse for a man that I ever saw. And that if I never saw him alive again, it would be a good thing. And I walked out of there, and he had big tears running down his cheeks. And I never did see him alive again. And that's the worst thing I ever did in my life. And I'll tell you that. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I could take back five minutes of my life. I wish with all my being, and I'll tell you this till the day I die, that of all the gifts God gave me, the one that I enjoy sometimes most is a good healthy body. I'd give my good right arm if I could take back five minutes of my life. And I mean it, but I can't. I never told that man that I loved him, and I did, and I do. And I wished I had. If you love somebody, tell them today, for your sake, not theirs. I wrote that down. I wrote down every other rotten thing that I'd ever done in my life. And I went to see a priest because I knew he couldn't squeal. <laughs> and I got in line in the confessional and uh, didn't tell him I was coming. Just wanted three hours of his time with 44 people behind me. <laughs> He was a good guy. Make an appointment. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. Make an appointment to see me. Say three or fathers, three or Marys. Get out of here. Make an appointment to come see me. He was a good guy. As you can imagine, that didn't work too well. So I went to see Joe. And I did a fifth step with my sponsor. And I did not look him in the eye. But I told him what I told you. And I told him everything else that I'd written down there, and I didn't hold anything back. And when I was all done, he said to me, is that all? <laughs> and he shared some things about himself. And a couple of things happened to me that I want to report to you because they were of great significance. One, I found out that I never committed any original sins. Let me repeat that, okay? <laughs> I found out I never committed any original sins. Neither did you. <laughs> and if you never told anybody your worst secret, the only person that thinks it's original is you. And if you're sitting there thinking, as I used to, if you really knew what I was like, you wouldn't like me. Let me give you a flash. The person next to you already knows what you like. <laughs> They've been there. 
Isn't that scary to contemplate? They know, man. They know what you did behind the barn. They know what you did in the attic. They know the people you hated because they've done the same thing. Only you never find that out till you tell somebody else. And then it diminishes. And the second thing I learned, and maybe it was my ticket into this fellowship, really into this fellowship, and that was I found out that I could tell somebody else the truth for the first time ever about me and still have them care and still have them love me and still have them respect me. And this was a man that I respected beyond all others. And it changed nothing. It enhanced our relationship. Now, as a result of that, I took a new view at the mumbo-jumbo contained in the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and went back slowly with his urging and tried to put them into my life. When I was done, my, father, my, my sponsor said to me, well, what about your mother? She's still living? I said, I think so. <coughs> How long since you've seen her? I said, I don't know, five years. Does she know you're alive? I said, I don't know. Why don't you go see her? Better yet, you, you better write to her first. We, we, we wouldn't want to shock the poor woman. So I wrote to my mother. And my mother's like a lot of mothers. Uh, like Dillinger's mother. Uh, my Johnny's not a bad boy, you know. <laughs> Come back. I went back and saw my mom. and uh, She lived for 10 years. And I saw her frequently. Had the opportunity to do what we're supposed to do, which is make amends. Had the opportunity to frequently go home and spend time with her. And let her tell me the old folk stories about the family 999 times. <laughs> I took her to Mass on Sundays in my car. Let her tell me how to drive my car. <laughs> Even though she never had a driver's license in her life. Took her shopping when she told me to stop at every stop sign on the way before I got to the stop sign. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> learned to tell her I loved her. Learned to show her that I loved her. Guess who changed in that process? Not my mother, <coughs> but me. As a result of this effort that I only took when all else failed, I had a chance of becoming what I think we all want to become when you boil off all the nonsense in our heart of hearts. I have a chance of becoming, I think, what I wish to be more than anything in this world. And that's a decent human being. I don't want to be a tough guy. I don't want to be a hard ass. I don't have any desire to have an image. Certainly I have an ego, but I don't have any desire to have an image. Now what ego I have, you can have. If you can take it, you can have it. It's yours. I don't want it. It's not worth anything. You know? If you have a brain, if you have a gift, if you have some gifts from God, they're to be used as tools I've come to understand. And that it's the heart that matters. And it's in our relationship with the people we love and the people we live with in this fellowship that matters. That's where we live. That's where we're of use. And that's where 
we experience decency for the first time, if you're like me. You can get hooked on decency. It's the decent people that I remember in my life. Not the ones to whom they build the monuments, but the decent ones. My father, my mother, my sponsor, friends I've had in this program, decent souls I've met over the years that my memory will guard forever, and I treasure them and I value them. If I were to tell you that uh, after I got sober, I became commander of an Apollo recovery team and uh, was ultimately commander of the Apollo recovery area, South Atlantic, that I served with distinction in Vietnam, that I was promoted to major six years after I got sober, after being passed over as a second lieutenant, that at age 42, uh, at the urging of what I felt was God's will for me, I got out of the Air Force and went to uh, college and graduated with highest honors and went to law school and graduated from law school. Dean's List and passed two bar exams and uh, wanted to become a uh, good trial attorney, real good one, represent people who couldn't afford to represent themselves. It would all be true. And it means nothing. With respect to what I'm talking about to you here today. But that's the way it went for me to this day. AA works under all circumstances if you let it. It's no trick, it seems to me. For me to be able to stay sober in this room with you. But I also found out that this program, this fellowship, this way of life lets me stay sober out there where the tigers live, where they become pussycats if you let them become pussycats. I learned over the years, against my will, to read the lives of the saints, <laughs> and even on occasion to try to imitate them. My particular favorite is St. Francis. <coughs> and I commend to you a book that I read not long ago that I didn't know existed on his life, written by English author G.K. Chesterton. And it seems to expose that virtue of a simple, wonderful spirit that we incorporate into our fellowship. St. Francis, you know, uh, lived in the late 12th, early 13th century, an age dominated by three people. One was an emperor, <laughs> Frederick II, Frederick the Great. The other was maybe the most famous pope in the church history, Innocent III. And the third person was Francis of Assisi. Nobody, nobody but a history buff like myself would remember the emperor or the pope. But in our own literature, that humble saint's words come down to us. He suggested that one of the things we could do in life and should do in life is to live it with a tremendous sense of gratitude. He also pointed out that the saddest soul in the world is an atheist who's truly grateful and doesn't know to whom. <laughs> 
I am so truly grateful that alcoholism, the disease that was in me and is in me to this day, squeezed the arrogance out of me before it squeezed the life out of me so that I could get to the place where I could begin to hear ever so dimly at first the collective voices that speak of God, of cleaning up the self, of being of use to others, and of attempting to become humble. Twenty-eight years ago and five or six months, I went to an AA meeting where the members were all old-time sergeants who met in the Salvation Army building. And I'm reminded of the songs and the hymns that they used to sing, one of which I remember well. O God, I stretch my hand to thine, no other help I know. If thou withdraw thy hand from mine, wherever shall I go? Twenty-eight years and five months ago, some old-time sergeants took my hand and never let it go. They walked the path they were the keepers of the flame. They did a 12-step job on me that took. They are all dead. I'm the last of them. I think it's entirely fitting that I should say to you that I congratulate you in their name. Thank you.